to the Court of Appeals. Uh, your panel this morning is uh, myself, uh, Chief Judge Donna Stroud, and to my right, we have Judge Hunter Murphy, to my left, Judge Julie Flood. And we have two cases for argument today. It looks like uh, our attorneys for our first argument are in place and ready to go. Have you already set the, uh, any rebuttal time that you want to reserve? Okay. Very good. Uh, then we will begin. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't hear me? Is that better? Okay. Yeah, these things are in the way of my computer. It's like this is in the way. This is in the way. Okay. Right. Well, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Aaron Johnson, and I represent Mr. Gunn. I plan to focus this morning on the first two issues from the brief, uh, and as noted, I reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. So, to start off, the bulk of this appeal turns on the proper interpretation of NCGS 90-95.1, uh, which is the statute that creates the offense of engaging in continuing criminal enterprise. This is an unusual crime. It appears to be rarely charged in North Carolina, uh, and it's marked by a number of distinctive features. First, the defendant has to act as a supervisor, organizer, or manager over at least five lower-level participants. Uh, so the offense is characterized by leadership of the CCE, not just membership. The enterprise has to engage in a continuing series of violations of this article. That means uh, Article 5 of Chapter 90, so drug crimes. And the defendant has to obtain substantial income or resources as a result of their efforts. So that brings me to our first issue whether the series component of the offense is just one element, or whether each individual violation that makes up the series constitutes its own essential element uh, that has to be proven beyond reasonable doubt, submitted to the jury, and then found unanimously. And the U.S. Supreme Court in United, uh, Richardson v. United States, when analyzing the federal analog, took up just this question and concluded that yes, each individual violation constitutes its own essential element. There were good reasons for this. They focused on text and tradition, uh, particularly the use of the term violation. Um, but they also looked at some pragmatic concerns, that it would basically aid in jury del uh, deliberations by forcing them to sort of dig into the evidence more deeply and not really letting them paper over any disagreements about what the defendant may or may not have done. Now, it appears that the state does not actually disagree with us on these points. Uh, first, that a series must include at least three uh, individual drug violations. And second, that each violation constitutes its own essential element. Where does the, whether the state agrees or not, you know, we're tasked with statutory interpretation. And with series, obviously I, I think that's something, even if it's not, in dispute here isn't exactly clear what that is under the statute. Um, so what what is it that we're basing that a series has to be three? Why isn't a series four or two? A uh, series, for why it wouldn't be two, I would think plain language. Uh, you would usually use something like pair if you're just talking about two. A series could be four. But every federal circuit, I believe, has addressed this issue. They have all settled on three. That's a number that the United States Supreme Court assumed in Richardson. Um, so if we wanted to set a number higher than three, we, you'd certainly be able to do that. Um, 
but it does seem like three is probably the lowest number that you could have while still making the word series appropriate. But that brings us to the part where I think the state and I actually disagree, and that's about whether or not each of the individual violations has to be distinctly alleged in the indictment. Uh, and the answer to that is yes. Uh, under long-standing North Carolina law, to be facially valid, an indictment must allege each and every essential element of the offense. Otherwise, a trial court lacks jurisdiction over the charge. Uh, I understand that the landscape on that may be shifting a little bit. That's why I filed a memorandum of additional authority citing uh, Newborn and JU from our Supreme Court. But if you read those carefully, I think what they're doing is there's a subtle shift from having to allege each essential element, like sort of laid out distinctly, versus having to allege facts from which all of the essential elements could be inferred. But if that's right, and if that standard is getting a little bit looser, um, I still think the indictment in this case still fails under even that standard. Uh, the language from the indictment is that the violation was part of a continuing series of violations of Article 5 of Chapter 90 of the General Statutes. Uh, I don't think there's any way to read that and pull out two distinct drug violations that you would need to constitute the rest of the series. The, the first part is the primary that is uh, and it's not possible to infer from that language any individual uh, predicate drug crimes. So the appropriate remedy uh, under a long line of cases uh, would be to vacate the judgment. And I did make sure to cite in the uh, memorandum one additional case that was after Newborn and uh, JU that was State v. Taylor from this court where they vacated uh, a conviction based on a defective indictment. So the remedy appears to remain the same. So if there are no questions on that, that brings me to my second issue. Whether our CCE statute should be construed so that a defendant who isn't any type of supervisor or leader or organizer and doesn't earn any substantial income from the enterprise could still be convicted of the offense based on a theory of aiding and abetting. Uh, the answer to that is no. This should be a carve-out from the usual rule applying uh, allowing aiding and abetting uh, liability. The central task of statutory interpretation is always to give effect to the intent of the legislature as best as possible. And I understand you start with the plain text, but you also look at what the act is trying to uh, accomplish, the context in which uh, the context in which it was passed, what other legislation might have been passed around the same time. Um, and so here, looking at this as a whole, I think the manifest legislative purpose was to create an offense focused on drug kingpins as opposed to lower level participants in the enterprise. The offense is defined in terms of occupying a supervisory role. Uh, it includes a requirement that the defendant obtain substantial income or resources. There are strong forfeiture provisions um, and it authorized much harsher uh, punishments that were available for most other drug crimes at the time. This was true when it was passed in 1971 as part of the uh, Controlled Substances Act. At that point, uh, you could actually get a life sentence. There was a mandatory minimum of 10 years for this, but you could get up to a life sentence. Uh, 
then the statute has been amended only one time, and that was with passage of the Fair Sentencing Act. Um, and that set a 20-year presumptive sentence for engaging in this offense uh, with a maximum of 50 years. So in short, the General Assembly, following Congress, created an offense that was uniquely focused on kingpins, allowing guilt based on a theory of aiding and abetting would contradict that manifest uh, legislative purpose by allowing the state to prosecute and punish even low-level participants as if they were kingpins, too. Well, couldn't the statute also be designed to, to get, under aid and bed theory at least, anybody that's really helping support this, even if they're not the low-level drug dealers? They could also be the office secretary that's, you know, passing around, um, you know, jobs, um, just helping somebody schedule their, their day of, hey, we've got, you know, you've got this large meeting, you've got that large meeting, why couldn't it apply there as well? So you're talking about the distinction between sort of what the Second Circuit endorsed in Amen and what Judge Posner writing for the Seventh Circuit endorsed, endorsed in uh, Pino Perez, uh, where Posner would have allowed aiding and abetting liability for those who are sort of outside of the organization. Um, one of the better examples of that is probably Ambrose. Where Not necessarily outside. I mean, they, they could be part of the organization, but say you've got, you know, somebody that basically just serves an administrative secretarial role, never touches drugs, never moves drugs, doesn't really care about the drugs, it just knows what the kingpin's doing and schedules all their stuff for them, does administrative tasks, never touches a drug, but knows what's going on. Well, that would still run into the problem of coming up against uh, legislative intent and what they were trying to do because the whole idea was to set up the specific offense for drug kingpins for the leadership of these enterprises in a way that would treat them differently than other members other participants in that enterprise so whether or not they're touching the drugs if they're lower down in the organization it really shouldn't apply to them this is really intended just for kingpins what separates, based on the language of the statute, this and pulls out the aid, air, aid and abet? What pulls it out? Yeah. Uh, the best textual example, and the state points this out actually, is uh, the supervisory role, that you cannot be directly guilty of this offense unless you're a supervisor of at least five other people. And allowing guilt. I, I think, I, I guess I'm not getting my, okay. my question through clearly, so let me just think I'm rephrasing it. I unfortunately skipped my cup of coffee this morning, so <laughs> bear with me for just a second. We've, let's look at aiding and abetting murder. Okay. Right? The person who aids and abets did not commit the murder. True. They're going to be punished. Obviously, you've got, you don't have this, the step up, you've got the step down. Mm -hmm. But they're going to be punished pretty severely. Yes. Uh, for aiding and abetting a first degree murder. So, Aid and abet is a very important thing that the legislature legislates against, common law mm -hmm. is against. So what in this statute shows that we're wanting to cut against that in this limited situation? If we're cutting against something that exists in common law, has been recognized by statutes in terms of our punishment levels, what here says no, no, no more aid or better for this principal crime. The principal crime being, yes, there's this kingpin that's doing all these bad things, he's supervising mm -hmm. and the like. 
but we're still going to punish somebody that's aiding and abetting. What's, what's to show me that that general principle is not going to apply? So why should this be treated differently? Uh, because this offense appears to be unique in that it is about supervising a criminal organization. Um, the, the murder example that you gave, that's a completely different type of crime where aiding and abetting makes more sense. It's not set up the same way to single out the leadership. Does that make sense? I, I guess I, I maybe I, I just disagree with you know leadership and principle seems like the okay. same. You know, in a murder case, you've got a principle that commits the crime. Well, if if I could say, I think it, it seems to me what you might be saying is that the this particular offense, um, the the principal crime, we'll call it itself, mm-hmm. the criminal uh, the continuing criminal enterprise. The elements require sort of a, an organization with at least three levels. We've yes. got a supervisor. We've got intermediate people they're working with. Mm-hmm. We've got lower-level people. Mm-hmm. Whereas a murder does right. not require the participation of. It could have other people participating, right. and obviously you could have other crimes like a conspiracy or whatever, or mm-hmm. anything, or you could have aiding and abetting or whatever. But it doesn't. The crime itself doesn't require an organization. Yes, that's right. And that's why this offense is different, and that's why it makes sense to carve out you know, the common law doctrine of aiding and abetting from this one offense, at least for those who are inside of the organization. So it was a little quicker than I expected, but I believe I've covered what I needed to on these issues. Uh, so well, I assure you we don't mind that at all. Okay. Then I will Sorry, reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Never feel bad about, you know. <laughs> Not using all your stuff. We don't want to cover your stuff. That is great. We're very happy with that. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Asher Spiller. I'm with the Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. Defendant's conviction in this case was the product of a major investigation into a McDowell County drug ring responsible for tracking, trafficking in large amounts of methamphetamine, heroin, fentanyl, and other drugs imported from California. Defendant, who was a meth dealer in his own right, was a major buyer from this organization, and his frequent purchases financially fueled the trafficking enterprise. I'm going to focus on two points today. First, the indictment in this case gave defendant ample notice of the charges against him so that he could prepare his defense. And second, North Carolina's continuing criminal enterprise statute does not clearly abrogate the common law doctrine of aiding and abetting, and therefore the doctrine applies. So turning first to the indictment, as our Supreme Court has held, the general rule in this state is that an indictment for a statutory offense is sufficient if the offense is charged in the words of the statute. And so that's the presumption that we're starting with. And this makes sense because the purpose of an indictment is to put the defendant on notice of the charges against him so that he can prepare his defense. And what better way to do that than to charge in the language that the General Assembly promulgated to establish the the crime charged. Here the indictment does exactly what the law requires. It sets forth the elements of the CCE charge in a plain and explicit manner and gave defendant notice of the criminal activity that was alleged to have occurred. As I said, the indictment does track the language in the statute, but it does more than that. The indictment identifies the primary violation here that established the continuing criminal enterprise as trafficking in methamphetamine, and it cites to the statutory provision that criminalizes that activity. 
It states that this violation was part of a continuing series of violations and specifies the time period during which the criminal activity occurred, as well as the location where the criminal activity occurred. It identifies the leaders of the continuing criminal enterprise, the individuals whom they supervised, and it also is worth noting that the defendant was not just indicted for CCE, he was also indicted for conspiracy to traffic in methamphetamine, which provides even additional notice of the criminal activity that was underlying the CCE. This indictment, as we note in our brief, is more specific than several indictments that have been upheld by the federal courts. Now, in his brief, defendant appears to acknowledge this, but argues that under Richardson, the state is required to allege each predicate violation with specificity. This argument is flawed uh, for multiple reasons. First, Richardson is easily distinguishable. Richardson was not about the sufficiency of an indictment. In Richardson, the court was addressing a specific circumstance where the jury was instructed that it did not need to be unanimous with respect to the violations underlying the CCE. That is simply not an issue in this case. Richardson did not hold that the predicate violations in a CCE must be pled with specificity. In our memorandum of additional authorities, we cite multiple cases that make this distinction. You know, applying these precedents, the Southern District of New York, for example, recently held, quote, the law is clear. An indictment need not specifically identify the predicate offenses for a CCE charge. But those are just interpretations of of federal law. We have this concept in our law that all essential elements have to be alleged. So how do those, other than Richardson saying these are essential elements, how does the fact that other federal circuits and the like have said, well, they don't have to be in the indictment, why does that matter when that the pleading issue is a matter of state constitutional law? So, uh, well, one thing I just noted at the outset, so two points in response to that. The first, the first thing I note is that the federal courts are applying the same principle. The federal law also says that the essential elements of a crime must be pled in the indictment. And I also think that this question of whether the violations are elements is a little bit of a red herring. Because what defendants arguing is not that the um, indictment has to put defendant on notice of uh, the fact that he committed multiple violations or a continuing series of violations uh, of the Controlled Substances Act. Defendant is arguing for more than that. He's arguing that these individual violations must be enumerated with specificity. And that, I don't think, is the same as just recognizing that they're elements of the crime. I think that's asking for more, and I think Given the General Assembly, given this Court's precedent saying that we start with the presumption that tracking the statutory language is sufficient, this indictment was sufficient because it not only tracked the statutory language, it also put defendant on notice of the types of violations that underlie the CCE. It put defendant on notice that these crimes involved the possession and transportation of methamphetamine. And it's also worth noting that the state's theory in this case was based on defendant's own statements to law enforcement, that he was buying at least an ounce of methamphetamine per week. If defendant required additional notice to be able to prepare his defense, he could have requested a bill of particulars. Uh, Unless there are any further questions on that issue, I'd like to move on to the aiding and abetting issue. 
So with respect to defendant's argument that aiding and abetting cannot serve as a basis for conviction under the CCE statute, this argument fails because the General Assembly has not provided a clear statement of its intent to abrogate the common law doctrine of aiding and abetting. Our Supreme Court has long held that statutes in derogation of common law must be strictly construed in favor of preserving the common law doctrine. To find that the General Assembly has abrogated the common law, it must be clear that the General Assembly intended to do so, and it is not here. And we agree with defendant that this Court's analysis should begin with the statutory text. Naturally, if you're going to look for a clear statement from the General Assembly of its intent to abrogate the common law, that's where you should look. And when we look at the statutory text here, what we see is that there is no clear statement. The statutory text itself makes no mention of aiding and abetting whatsoever. And this textual silence is important because the General Assembly has shown us that it knows how to make such a clear statement when it intends to abrogate the common law, including the common law doctrine of aiding and abetting. And we give several examples in our brief. The concealment of birth statute is an example where the General Assembly has said, quote, any person aiding, counseling, or abetting any other person in concealing the birth of a child in violation of the statute shall be guilty of a misdemeanor as opposed to the principal, who's guilty um, comparative to uh, trafficking. Um, there, so it's, in that way, it's much different than the approach that, that Congress has taken when it enacted the CCE statute. So again, you know, the General Assembly. So I, I guess, and the other thing, like I, I mentioned before, that that I, that seems that is sort of seems odd to me. So if this was enacted, as you've said, you know, to obviously impose additional uh, punishment on the people who are the the kingpin, I'll say, you know, it focuses on that. You've got this three, at least three level organization. You've got, or, you know, with the top and then the middle people and then the the people at the bottom of the enterprise, so to speak. But with aiding and abetting, why would the aiding and abetting theory here not apply to every single solitary person in that entire pyramid, we'll say, which would impose the exact same enhanced punishment on every single person in that entire pyramid? Well, one thing I would note um, is that to prosecute an aiding and abetting charge, it's, it's not enough that the state necessarily just show mere involvement there are specific elements that have to be met for aiding and abetting. The, uh, you know, we t- uh, Judge Murphy was asking about, you know, a secretary who doesn't care at all about drugs. You know, that I don't think would meet the elements of an aiding and abetting charge. An aider and abetter, the jury must conclude that the defendant knowingly advised, instigated, encouraged, procured, or aided the other person, and that the defendant's actions or statements caused or contributed to the commission of the crime by the other person. So I, I, I well, if the secretary sets up, you know, a meeting with someone, would that not be, you know, she knows they're going to sell drugs. She knows what the purpose of this meeting is. She knows the organization she's working for. And she sets up the meeting for this transaction to occur. Right. So um, one could imagine facts where um, uh, somebody occupying that role could meet the elements of aider and a better, but you could say the same thing for an aider and a better of drug trafficking, or the same thing for an aider and a better of murder, or the same thing of aiding and abetting another crime. Where well, yeah, but, but, so, but wouldn't it cover almost anyone involved in this pyramid? 
anyone who's one of those five people or more in the middle uh, would probably fall under that. And then the everybody at the bottom who sold any drugs, bought any drugs. Well, I think you're getting at a distinction that the court made in, in Pino Perez. Judge Posner said, look, this statute uh, contemplated the participation of the individuals who were supervised by the kingpin. Uh, we don't think those people should be prosecuted for aiding and abetting, but if you're outside the organization, meaning that you're not directly supervised by the kingpin, aiding and abetting is fair game. Mm -hmm. So one of our arguments in our brief, I mean, I don't think the court needs to reach that distinction because here a defendant was clearly outside the organization. There's no evidence that he was directed, managed, supervised, or anything like that by uh, Bullock or Tate. And just to get back to, to the point about the plain language of the statute, I think these examples that I've cited demonstrate that the General Assembly could have said and knew how to say that aiding and abetting constitutes a lesser crime. It could have said that aiding and abetting is not a crime at all. It did neither of those things. And, in fact, it's the defendant that's stepping outside the statutory text by asking this Court to draw an inference about the General Assembly's intent to abrogate the common law by appealing to those federal cases and by appealing to, it seems like what he's arguing is that a primary purpose of the statute is to punish drug kingpins. We don't dispute that. And to go back to Judge Murphy's question, you could say the same thing about the statute criminalizing homicide. You could same, say the same thing about a statute criminalizing rape. But again, those crimes don't require an organization, right? That's true. Yeah. And I think the, what I'd say in response to that is certainly uh, a purpose of the General Assembly here was to punish drug kingpins. But it could also have been a purpose of the General Assembly to ensure that these types of broad criminal organizations that are engaged in these series of violations are uh, prosecuted, including those that are associated with them. There, there's no reason uh, to uh, infer some purpose to abrogate uh, aiding and abetting absent some clear indication uh, from the General Assembly. And the mere fact that this crime aims at criminal organizations, I don't think is sufficient to conclude that the General Assembly clearly wanted to uh, make prosecution for aiding and abetting unavailable to the state. And I think that's, what the, that's the test that this court has to use for determining whether to uh, determine that the prosecution for aiding and abetting in this case was not available. So I'm happy to get into the, the federal case law on this if the, if the Court has any questions. Um, you know, we think that for purposes of construing whether the General Assembly specifically intended to abrogate common law, this Court is uh, much, uh, on a much better footing if it's looking at the text of the statute, uh, the circumstances around the statute, and North Carolina case law. And what the federal courts were looking at was congressional intent, congressional legislative history, which I don't think is uh, sufficient to provide a clear statement of North Carolina's General Assembly's intent to abrogate the common law doctrine of aiding and abetting. 
So for those reasons, unless there are any further questions, we respectfully ask that defendants' convictions be upheld. Thank you. Thank you. Rebuttal? I think I have uh, plenty of time, but just three quick points. Uh, First, as to the state's argument that an indictment is generally sufficient if it tracks the statute, uh, that might usually be the case, but there are times where there are elements that are not expressly laid out in the statute, and they do still have to be alleged in the indictment. Uh, For that proposition, I would point you to Rankin from uh, our Supreme Court a couple years ago. I want to say 2018, but I'm not sure about that. The second point, uh, this would be about your question, uh, Judge Stroud. Allowing aiding and abetting liability, wouldn't that extend full kingpin liability to everyone who is a member of the organization? Yeah. That's that's part of the problem. And if the state is correct that Mr. Guffey, looking at the evidence in this case, Mr. Guffey was either a rather small part of Tate and Bullock's organization or he was an outside buyer. If he was wholly an outside buyer, like the state is now arguing, that means they're arguing that aiding and abetting liability should extend even to ordinary buyers, which is a pretty significant escalation when the statute is aimed at kingpins. Um, and the third point, you just there was a, a question speculating about why the statute has been on the books for 50 years but hasn't really been used very much. I suspect it's because in the late 70s and early 80s they introduced the trafficking statutes which allowed for easier convictions, uh, far or fewer elements, uh, just simpler, simpler charges to prove. So if there are no further questions, I would ask this court to vacate the trial court's judgments and remand for further proceedings. Did you have anything else? I'm, I'm looking at your reply brief on the, um, the ambiguous verdict argument. Yes. Do you have anything else in response to, I think, the state is referencing, sorry, here, to the right place, state's reference of I think, Lorenzo and, and Rozier that stand for this act that the single act of conspiring is inclusive of possession, transportation, or delivery? You're looking at the line of cases stemming from McLam. Um, I will admit I overlooked that holding and the line of cases the first time, but I do have some thoughts about it. Uh, Okay. If you could. McLam, as far as I can tell, it has not been overruled, and it would not even be fair to say that it has been overruled sub silentio. However, I do think it's out of sync with developments regarding unanimity since then. Um, That's true for both federal law and for state law. If you look at cases like Richardson, or if you look at, at the state level, the Hartness line of cases and the Diaz line of cases, they draw a distinction between elements where the jury has to be unanimous and different brute means or theories where the jury does not actually have to be unanimous. So if that's right, then McLam could only be right if the substantive object of the conspiracy is not actually an essential element of the offense. Um, and I think that would be a difficult conclusion to reach because we routinely instruct juries about the object of the, uh, the conspiracy and sentencing is normally linked to that. Um, so I can't say that McLam has been overruled, uh, but I do think it's out of sync with um, 
current developments on that, including some of the cases uh, cited in the memorandum. Uh, I included Cox for the proposition that when uh, — for a conspiracy, the conspirators have to agree about each element of the substantive object of the conspiracy, each element of the crime that they plan to commit. Um, so if that's right, then it seems they would have to agree on what crime they actually mean to commit. Um, and if that's right, then McLam is no longer really consistent with those, though, again, I can't really fairly say that it's been overruled. I can't say that there's at least some tension. And until it's overruled, would you agree that in civil penalty would tie our hands to follow the McLam line? <sighs> Since it hasn't been overruled, probably. But I would ask for a ruling on this. Thank you. So, if any further questions? Okay. Thank Great. you very well, much. Well, thank you very much. Proceed to our next case, which is uh, State v. Cornwell. So y'all can just go ahead and switch places. Or You don't really have to switch places, you know, you can. but you might want to stay. I don't know. The topic of this argument might also be interesting to them. So. <laughs> what now? Okay. It's going to take him a second to do the. No computer stuff. Okay. We have to make the computers happy. All right, the computer is now happy, and we can proceed with your argument. All right. Okay, uh, may it please the court, my name is Jason Yoder, and I'm here today representing Mr. Cornwell in this case. I'd like to start with the fourth issue in this case, and then I'll talk about the second issue in this case. 
Mr. Cornwell received ineffective assistance of counsel under the State versus Harbison line of cases when his trial lawyer admitted that Mr. Cornwell was a buyer and seller of drugs, a lesser-included Article 5 offense that the State was required to prove pursuant to the indictment for continuing criminal enterprise, and that catching Mr. Cornwell was as easy as shooting fish in a barrel. During the opening statements in this case, the ineffective assistance of counsel began when Mr. Cornwell's attorney openly opined to the jury that he supported law enforcement, that the scope of Mr. Cornwell's crime could have been prevented by the police if they had acted earlier, and how can I argue on Mr. Cornwell's behalf? That's how this case opened to the jury. During trial testimony, Mr. Cornwell's attorney stated to the jury during cross-examination that people at the intersection were pretty much buying and selling drugs and in doing so, breaking the law, weren't they, to the police officer. And finally, during his closing arguments, Mr. Cornwell's attorney admitted that he committed the, committed the crime of buying and selling drugs. He said, I believe this is now about shooting fish in a barrel. It's not difficult to catch fish. It's not difficult to shoot fish in a barrel. A mere buyer and seller relationship between Mr. Cornwell and another person does not constitute supervising, managing, or organizing. If there has ever been an implied admission of guilt to a lesser included offense, this is it. Our cases hold that an attorney is the agent of the client, and they cannot make an admission to the crime or to a lesser included crime unless the client expressly gives permission for that to happen. Let me start with the lesser included portion. Why is this a lesser included crime of CCE? I understand it's, it's part of what needs to be shown, but why is it a lesser included crime? Because if, are you saying that if, the, say, the state didn't have enough to submit to a jury that there's five people in this organization, say the state only got on evidence of four, would then the state have been free to continue on and seek convictions for the those listed in the indictment here? Absolutely, Your Honor. That is our contention. But under Richardson, the, the state has the burden of proving each individual uh, offense in that con con continuing series beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and each crime is its own discrete crime that must be proven to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Here they alleged a specific crime within the CCE framework. And because they were required to prove that to the jury, it is a lesser included of the CCE offense. If during the motion to dismiss phase, for instance, the trial court had concluded there was insufficient evidence of the, the organization, there were not five people, or that there had been um, an insufficient proof of substantial um, money earned through the CCE, then he could have dismissed the overarching charge and submitted to the jury the lesser includes of the buying and selling of drugs and the, um, the, the trafficking 
cocaine of 400 grams or more. Um, those were two separate crimes. Only two crimes were alleged in the indictment in this case. And those two crimes could have been submitted to the jury as lesser included offenses under this indictment. Because they were required Without to be. Without a sentencing grid in front of me, wouldn't those two individually, if convicted of those and not the CCE charge, wouldn't those add up to more than what the CCC charge was potentially looking at in punishment? Um, well, the trafficking, uh, a completed trafficking offense is now considered to have a greater punishment uh, if it's a 400 grams or more than um, a completed CCE offense. That is a quirk in the statute um, and the punishments that appears to be, um, have come about because most of the trafficking statutes have come about since CCE was first enacted in 1971. So this statute has languished kind of in the books uh, without the General Assembly paying very much attention to it. Um, I think that's in part because it's hardly, if ever, charged and somehow got charged twice this year in different <laughs> counties, and that's why we're here today. Um, continuing criminal enterprise was, when it was enacted, the largest drug of charge that you could be charged with in North Carolina. And I believe it might have been the only charge that you could get life imprisonment for. Um, at the time that it was initially enacted. Uh, subsequently, the General Assembly, um, you know, amended the punishment scheme in, in at least twice uh, since CCE was first enacted for fair sentencing and also for structured sentencing. And um, even though technically uh, trafficking could be considered a lesser of this particular indictment, um, it could, in fact, be punished greater um, in terms of the amount of time you could get if you were sentenced. Okay. Thank you. And I, I believe you said that um, there was an implied admission of guilt to a lesser included offense. Can you direct us somewhat to maybe some differentiation cases between an implied admission versus a direct admission? Well, uh, I mean, a direct admission is the sort of the traditional Harbison line of cases where the, the, the um, attorney during closing arguments will say, uh, you should enter a guilty verdict uh, for second-degree murder um, because you haven't proved, the state hasn't proven first-degree murder. Uh, so my client's guilty of mm -hmm. second-degree murder. Um, the implied um, line of cases is a little bit more recent, and McAllister is probably the controlling case on that issue from the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, and that basically says if you look at the totality of what the um, – the lawyer says to the jury about the lesser included offense, they, there's no way they can take that as anything less than um, an express concession of guilt as to, um, and this is, I think, an implied admission of guilt, but it's awfully close to a direct admission of guilt because he's saying um, that he is a buyer and seller of drugs, and he's saying he's pretty much breaking the law. So... Uh, while he's not expressly telling the jury to enter a guilty verdict um, on a lesser included charge, he is telling the jury, look, this guy is guilty of buying and selling drugs at this intersection. And he's basically taking the state's burden of proof away for those lesser included charges. In Matthews, um, was it a situation 
Was it clear that he was already going to get an instruction on second-degree murder in Matthews? So the concession to second-degree murder mattered? Because here we didn't, if I recall, we didn't have, there weren't going to be instructions on these lesser included, correct? And in fact, there were, there were no instructions whatsoever as to the elements of any of these charges, ultimately. Not only did he concede um, guilt as to them, but he didn't even ask the jury to be instructed on them. Um, I think the Harbison error does not turn on the question of whether the jury is ultimately charged with, because that's a decision that can only be made after the trial has been completed and the evidence has been submitted by all of the parties. Um, a lesser included charge is inherent in an indictment. So a second degree murder charge is, is a lesser included always of a first degree murder charge. Um, when it's based on premeditation and deliberation. Um, but but does the Harbison presumption of prejudice still e exist in that situation where there's not going to be an instruction on the lesser included? So there's no chance that the person's going to be convicted of that? Um, I know we don't have the rule is Harbison doesn't require prejudice, but that's because it's talked about as, you know, it's so fundamental that you can't really sort that out, so we're not going to. But if there's no chance of conviction of that, then does that, well, uh, how does that interact with Harbison, I guess, is my question. If, if there's no chance of conviction there's always, of those. Oh, well, so, Your Honor, I would dispute that there's no chance of conviction. I, I think even if no instruction had been included, the judge, even after deliberation, still has the power to dismiss the greater and enter judgment on the lesser. Even after a jury enters a guilty verdict on the greer if he finds that there was insufficient evidence. So uh, sufficiency evidence can be raised both prior to the jury instructions being set in and after the jury instructions are there. And I believe they can, it can even be um, argued after a jury has returned a verdict. So I don't think it necessarily uh, says that, but I do think if a defense lawyer made an implied admission to a lesser included, and the jury was not instructed on that, um, it, that admission would be held against the defendant in the judge's mind. The, judge's, the judge could not dismiss um, the lesser included offense, having had the client concede guilt uh, to that offense in front of him. So that admission well, don't we includes use that legal him never being acquitted. Don't we use that legal fiction all the time, though, that if, if a judge is making a determination, he's going to set aside, he or she's going to set aside what's relevant, what's not relevant. It's going to only consider something for its proper purpose and wouldn't necessarily consider that admission without a Harbison admonishment to be, you know, concession by the defendant of guilt like a jury would. Would a, would a judge not consider the lawyer's concession to the guilt of the lesser included without a Harbison hearing? I don't know. Applying the legal fiction that we see across the board and, and have to continue to, to use the judges, if the judge is sitting as the finer fact or making that consideration, then we have to assume the judge only consider it for the proper purpose unless something says they consider it for improper purpose. Well, I, I think it would be a proper purpose to consider the, the defendant's admission of guilt um, in terms of a motion to dismiss. Well, and one of your arguments is about the failure to instruct on the elements of sale and delivery. That's so, correct. Um, 
And I'll just point out there was yeah. no instruction on any yeah. of the, the sub-charges um, at Which issue in this seemed case. seemed odd to me, and uh, maybe the state will explain that. But, um, and of course, given the fact that there are no other CCE cases to look at um, and see how they did the instructions, that doesn't help us much. But, but it does seem odd that the offenses that are charged as the series of offenses, that there was no instruction on them. Yes, um, and that is one of our contentions in the brief, that that failure to instruct on any of the Article 5 offenses in this case is effectively has corrupted the instruction so badly um, that it, it essentially resulted in a dismissal of all those charges under the case law here. North Carolina, um, in North Carolina, a failure to submit a single element of a crime uh, would not necessarily be prejudicial per se. But as far as I understand, there has never been a case holding that the failure to instruct on all of the elements of a crime um, can be reviewed for harmless error. And I understand this is a very unique charge because each individual crime is itself an element of the greater offense. So this charge is like a Russian nesting doll uh, where, you know, inside the CCE, there are smaller crimes uh, that have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, I think the pattern instruction that was used here might have come from the pattern instruction book. Um, as we know, those pattern instructions are not always accurate um, and sometimes incomplete. And this one having no law Well, on that's, it. that's what I was thinking. <laughs> pattern instructions were presumably created when the statute was, at some point after the statute was passed. But we've had no development of that by cases because there haven't been any. Yes. And this court has the opportunity to make that decision as to whether the jury has to be instructed on the elements of each one of the offenses. Um, of course, not having been instructed at all, we don't know exactly what the jury found in this case. We don't know which crimes of this series and the evidence that they found. Uh, we don't know for sure if they found them, uh, each individual one beyond a reasonable doubt, or if that each juror just thought, yeah, Mr. Cornwell's attorney admitted they were buying and selling drugs. We saw videos of several transactions. That sounds like enough um, without the deliberation getting any further. And that's a serious problem in a case like this um, because you can't know for sure if the jury properly returned a guilty verdict uh, in cases like this. Um, if there are any more questions about the Harbison, I'd turn quickly to the second issue, the double jeopardy issue. Um, it's not every day that you get a case um, where there's a federal analog deciding an almost identical issue at the United States Supreme Court. Um, but this is such a case. Um, we believe that this case is controlled by Rutledge and the double jeopardy analysis um, that was undertaken in that case. And I think it's important to note um, that both indictments in this case spanned the identical period of time. 
that both of them had the identical co-conspirators. They both were the exact same statute, 9095H3C, I think it is. And that ultimately the jury was only instructed once as to the conspiracy, uh, as to the trafficking elements, I'm sorry. Um, they were only instructed once as to the conspiracy portion. The state never requested a second or a different instruction as to trafficking that would have enabled the jury to like make a determination of whether there were two trafficking offenses or two conspiracies in this case. And um, the facts are so closely aligned with Rutledge that we uh, believe you should reverse this for resentencing. Um, I understand it was not uh, preserved by the trial lawyer in this case, and so we did request Rule 2 review, as well as argue for ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, there are cases in North Carolina, and I think I cited them in the brief, holding that an ineffective assistance of counsel claim can be ruled on on direct review for when there's a double jeopardy claim. And that makes sense because you don't really need to have a remand hearing to determine whether it was reasonable to have your client sentenced twice uh, for the same conduct. Um, at the federal level, I believe these are almost always resolved on direct review, um, either through ineffective assistance of counsel claims or through plain air review. Um, and this court has a history of invoking Rule 2 to address double jeopardy claims, um, almost overwhelmingly addressing them on direct review, and I cited all those cases um, in, in the brief. And it's important, even though the two sentences here were run concurrently, um, to address this, because any additional felony, of course, could be used against um, a client in the future. It could be used against a client in a habitual felon case where one felony was struck, but another felony uh, could be used um, as a prior record level point, for instance. Don't we have that with the habitual, or not the, the possession of firearm by a felon that's not challenged? Well, that would be the case in this case. Um, but then you would. Uh, the I guess part, since the part, we're trying to figure out our exercise of discretionary mm. purposes. Or for discretionary purposes, what is the collateral consequence to your client or potential collateral consequence to your client of this additional conviction? Two collateral consequences, obviously. Um, one is that under United States versus Ball, I think is the case that's cited in my brief, the trial court actually has discretion as to which of the two double jeopardy claims it wants to dismiss. There is no law requiring it to dismiss the lesser included offense. It can, if it so chooses, dismiss the higher level offense. So actually at this stage, we don't know what the trial court would decide and which charge it would ultimately elect to dismiss. Is that a matter of constitutional law or a matter of federal criminal procedure? I believe that's a constitutional law, the United States versus Ball. I don't think that's rested on any federal rule of criminal procedure. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you for that answer, sir. Uh, as to the other collateral consequences, I do think there is a prior record level possibility of collateral consequences. Um, 
It, might, it would depend on, you know, if there was a habitual felon type situation in the future, how those points um, were ultimately used. But obviously, possession of a firearm by a felon is a much le lower felony classification than either trafficking or continuing criminal enterprise. So if you would take out, um, for instance, the trafficking charge, the, and then there was a habitual felon situation in the future, you would have only the possession of a firearm by a felon to be used as prior record level points. And that would be an F for fewer points than a D or a C, for instance. Um, so there are collateral consequences um, to that that could happen in the future. And those are the kinds of consequences um, that should be considered, that you should consider when you're determining whether to invoke Rule 2. Um, I also think the reasons for preservation are less important in this situation. Um, of course, it's always important for trial lawyers to raise issues below, but this is not an issue that would have required um, vetting of facts at the trial level. Uh, rather, it's the kind of issue that, that could be resolved it's essentially judicially efficient for you to resolve it now um, rather than in the, in the future. And would it also be that the, uh, the additional sentencing point factor, the elements of the present offense are included in any prior offense? So if he were convicted of CCC again in the future, that could be a sentencing point there? Yeah, that is a sentencing point that you do see sometime. Um, And I, I see that I have um, seven and a half minutes. Um, if there are any more questions, um, I'm free, happy to answer them on any of the issues that I presented in the case. If not, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. That would be fine. Again, we, we have no problem with that at all. Thank you. That's great. May it please the court. My name is Benjamin Zellinger. I'm from the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. From December of 2017 through May of 2018, the drug kingpin of Hickory, defendant Jerron Cornwell, engaged in a drug conspiracy with numerous co-defendants to traffic, sell, and deliver cocaine throughout the city. Law enforcement, using poll cameras, surveillance, and wiretaps, did something about it. And at his trial, jurors got to not just see the defendant doing his drug dealing, but hear the actual phone calls where the defendant was uh, acting as a supervisor in this drug conspiracy. And this appeal is really about whether prosecutors need to break down an element of cr continuing criminal enterprise to articulate specific facts that constitute a cr continuing criminal enterprise in an indictment, something that uh, has never been required with state law. I'd like to address four points with this court. First, this question, is there any authority for this defendant's new contention that an indictment needs to enumerate predicate acts that form a continuing criminal enterprise? Second, was there error for the court to sentence the defendant for these two distinct offenses? And whether the court should even reach this when defendant concedes that this issue is not preserved for appeal? Third, that the jury instruction that was provided by the trial court followed the pattern in relevant case law? And fourth, that there was not uh, ineffective assistance of counsel when counsel attempted to distinguish defendant's role in this drug scheme. And I'd like to start, I guess I'll follow the, the defendant's um, appellant's 
um, pattern and start with the fourth issue about the ineffective assistance of counsel. And I'd firstly uh, encourage the court to look at what was actually said because what was written in appellant's brief and what was just argued to you was not what was said. Um, specifically on page 32 of appellant's brief, and, I, and I'm sure, I don't want to disparage um, appellant counsel, I'm sure this was an accident, and it appears that the first paragraph where um, Mr. Cornwell's attorney said, I believe that this is now about shooting fish in a barrel, neither makes you a hunter nor a marksman. It's kind of like if you've ever been to a stocked lake. And then it ends with this sentence, it's not difficult to shoot fish in a barrel. And then it starts back, a mere buyer-seller relationship between Mr. Cornwell and another person does not constitute supervising, managing, or organizing. There's three pages in between those comments. Um, and it's important to note what is said in those three pages because it is the defendant's counsel arguing as hard as he can that despite this smoke of all the drug dealing that was happening in this neighborhood of Ridgeview, um, that this defendant was not a supervisor or administrator of a drug conspiracy. And so essentially, at best, what could be argued is not an implied admission of guilt. At best, what could be um, argued is that there's an implied admission to one of the elements of this crime, which is that there was some element of drug dealing going on. Um, and at this point, I spent a lot of time in the state's brief, probably in error, talking about the potential prejudice to the defendant. And, and that doesn't really matter, of course, as, as the case law dictates under McAllister. But what does matter is the context of how these comments came out, because the jury just heard days and days of testimony of this defendant on the phone talking with people about trafficking drugs. And they saw him with videos of him taking this black bag out, which is a sort of modus operandi, and selling drugs. And so. Um, it's important to note in here that um, the defendant's counsel said, right now the state has not shown, and they do not have the last three ingredients, and that is that he joined forces with five other people to help him commit these crimes. The five other people he oversaw as an organizer, supervisor, or manager, and then he acquired substantial amount of income or resources as a result of these crimes. So essentially what defendant's counsel did is he got up there after the jury has seen and hear, heard all this testimony about the defendant, and again, this isn't, you know, merely a confidential informant saying, oh, I saw this guy, believe me. They got to see it and hear it with their own eyes and ears. Um, so he's got to get up there and try to mitigate this and try to find a way out for his client. And so if you do find that this um, second paragraph that actually occurs on page 581, not page 578, is some sort of admission, it's, it's immediately followed by um, Mr. Cornwell, another person, does not constitute supervising, managing, or organizing. The fact that a person is a seller does not mean that he or she has some managerial role. Um, earlier on that page, the state has not proven that Mr. Cornwell knew Mr. Hatcher. If that's the case, they haven't proven or been able to show that he had anything to do with coordinating anything with Mr. Hatcher. The state did not show that Mr. Cornwell funded or paid any of Mr. Mungro's expenses at the hotel. The state did not show or hasn't shown that Mr. Cornwell ever directed, managed, or supervised any of his friends. It's not there. I don't want to read all three pages of the transcript of the court, but I'd urge the court to pay close attention to what was actually said, because when you compare it with the actual case law for Harbison, it is far different. Um, and of course, in Harbison, defendant's counsel said, I don't feel that Williams should be found innocent. In Matthews, a Supreme Court case from 2004, this is probably the first time I've come up in front of the jury and said you ought to not even consider that last possibility, which is not guilty. Um, State v. Goss, 2007, 
Um, you return the verdict that the evidence supports guilty of second-degree murder. Um, Campbell from 2005, the only difference is a second-degree murder case lacks that specific intent element. And I submit to you that that's where we're in at this case, folks. Um, defendant's counsel had an impossible task in, in trying to argue this at closing. And without making some sort of acknowledgement of the facts surrounding the case, the defense attorney would have no shot of saying anything credible to the jury. And so um, I'd argue to you that to require that the admission of part of an element constitutes a need for a Harbison hearing would have a chilling effect on defendants' counsel's ability to argue cases um, and argue for um, their clients. Um, and if there's not any questions on... Well, I want, if you can, talk a little bit about this lesser included aspect. Sure. So um, I think that's where, where I see the most rub, at least right now, sitting here as we're talking, um, that given what was in the indictment, that there may have been an admission to a lesser included at a minimum. And does that matter or not in this situation? Is it actually a lesser included? Are there lessers included to the statute or not? And, Judge, as you astutely noted, there were no lesser included provided to the jury in this case. Of course, charging conference comes before the closing argument, so defendant's counsel was aware of that. And um, so I guess to start, whether the sale or, uh, or buying of drugs or the sale and delivery of drugs would constitute a lesser included offense, I, I dispute that in that in this case, um, Maybe the facts would, would support that, but I think that this court is forced to take a categorical approach in this. And the court could have a situation where someone is an administrator or supervisor of a drug conspiracy, but they don't actually sell or deliver the drugs. They're just involved in setting up that fabric. And whether that would constitute a sale and deliver, I think, is, is a hard sale. So I'm not sure that it is specifically a lesser included, but you run into this instance of where you concede a potential element, and that's not violative of our case law. And the question is whether it truly is a lesser included. And I think there's enough in the continuing criminal enterprise elements um, that cast a question about whether this really would be a lesser included based on sort of this categorical approach about, um, about whether looking at whether the violation of this, uh, the violations was part of a continuing series, whether that would satisfy a lesser included. But here, in this specific case, there wasn't a lesser included. So uh, I'd argue that that's sort of a red herring that, um, that defendant's counsel knew that he didn't have to worry about that at that point. And therefore, it, it, you know, he can make these, sort of, um, make these sort of concessions about what the context of the case should. And I mean, again, there's overwhelming evidence in this case. Um, and so it's hard not to talk about the prejudice, but I think the reason that it's relevant is because there's so much evidence about this defendant's guilt that this defendant's counsel had an impossible task. And, and, he, and he did everything he could, and then he argued, look, this neighborhood, you walk out there and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. And, and he's not talking about specifically Mr. Cornwall. He's saying Ridgeview is that sort of stocked lake um, where there's these houses and there's everybody out there selling drugs, and then he tries to distinguish his client is, is not been proven to be related to all that. He's not an administrator. The state hasn't shown it, and the state hasn't proven it. Um, 
I'll then jump to the third issue, because I think that the Court had some questions about it, and defendants sort of touched on it, so I'll go backwards through, through the issues as they're presented in the, the brief, um, about whether the trial court properly instructed the jury on the continuing criminal enterprise statute. And firstly, the first and foremost thing is, is that this is invited error. Uh, the Court asks defendants' trial counsel, is this satisfactory to you? And defendants' counsel says, yes, sir, it is. And so it's kind of unfair for defendants to now claim that this, this was unfair um, and that the jury instruction and, and the reason that it's done in this way is so that there's a desire, and, and I quoted the State v. Odom case, there's a desire to make sure that any objections come at the, up at the trial court so there's not multiple repeated trials and, and trial courts can correct any errors in, in um, what's provided to a jury. But um, so this was not preserved for appeal. It was never objected to, and in fact, it was invited error because it was, it was agreed upon by defendants' counsel. But additionally, and, and probably more what the court was asking about earlier, this CCE instruction was accurate. Um, defendant draws issue with the fact that, the, I guess to start with, what was actually said to the jury was that the defendant committed a felony under the Controlled Substances Act by selling and delivering cocaine and by trafficking, and or by trafficking in cocaine by sale and delivery and that this felony was a part of a continuing series of violations of the Controlled Substances Act, specifically that the defendant sold or delivered cocaine on multiple occasions between December and May, um, December 2017 to May of 2018. The pattern jury instruction for sale and delivery of drugs is that the defendant knowingly sold or delivered named substance to, to the buyer. So it's not like the jury was going to receive any additional information. If, if the judge said, hold on, I'm going to instruct on what sale and delivery is, it would sound exactly the same, that there was um, trafficking in cocaine by sale and delivery, that the defendant, um, that there was a felony under the Controlled Substances Act by selling and delivering. Specifically, a defendant sold or delivered cocaine. That's exactly what's in the sale or delivery instruction that's provided to a jury if you're being tried just for those offenses. So. I don't think that this ar argument was preserved for appeal and that this court should reach it. And then additionally, the instruction was accurate. Um, Does, was there any, so I'm assuming the defendant obviously didn't request any specific instructions. That, that's correct. And, and so did they just go on the pattern instruction? And that is correct, Your Honor. They just went on the pattern instruction. And, and not only was that, was there no objection, but there was an agreement by a defendant's counsel. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn to the, the second issue which defendant raised, which is this um, claim that um, the defendant um, could not be sentenced for both the continuing criminal enterprise and the trafficking, which are two distinct and separate offenses. Um, firstly, and perhaps most importantly, defendant seeks to raise this issue on appeal and concedes that this issue was not preserved um, and that he has waived his right to appeal on this issue. Um, and again, the, it's important to look at what Rule 2 says. The text of Rule 2 provides two instances in which an appellate court may waive compliance with appellate rules. One, to prevent manifest injustice to a party, or two, to expedite decision in the public interest. And so here, it appears that the only argument could be that this was a manifest injustice to a party, and it's a case where the two sentences were consolidated or run concurrently. So the only collateral effect, basically, is that in 15 years or however long it is, if Mr. Cornwell gets out and commits another offense, um, he could have 
additional sentencing points for that. But it's also important to recognize why a defense attorney might not argue for uh, two sentences um, to arrest judgment on one of the sentences, and that's because what happened here, the judge consolidated, or I keep saying consolidated, I apologize, he ran them concurrently, but if the judge is going to run them concurrently, it's an interesting question of whether this was a strategic decision by the defense attorney not to argue to arrest him because his client is basically not having two consecutive sentences but is instead going to have a concurrent sentence where the only collateral problem is that maybe he has um, sentencing points in the future. And so that, that was a strategic decision. Um, and so when we get into these issues of whether it was a strategic decision, and, and defendant will argue, well, look, no one would, would seek to go here and would want judgment arrested and would never, um, would never seek to not do that. And, and I don't know that that's that clear because if, if defendant's counsel has some sort of idea that these sentences are going to be run concurrently, it might be a risky endeavor for defendant's counsel to request that one be arrested. Um, but looking at Rule 2, again, is this a manifest injustice? Um, and, I, and I, of course, I pointed to Steingrass, which says that without enforcement of the appellate rules, their value and benefit is lost. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons why Rule 2 can't be um, used to raise an issue when um, it's it, without some sort of manifest injustice. And here, we don't have that manifest injustice. Here, it's an extraordinary step to use Rule 2. And, and I did cite in, in my brief State v. Glenn, which was a capital case. Um, in which the court declined to use Rule 2 to address um, two counts of first-degree murder where a defendant was sentenced to two life sentences. But moving on to the actual um, meat of what the elements are and, and what these um, cases involve, these are two distinct offenses, and they involve each one involves an element that the other one does not include. And so um, they're not lesser included of each other, and therefore under the Blockburger test, um, they would not be as they're not they would not violate the Blackburger test in, in this instance. And, and the five elements of continuing criminal enterprise are the defendant committed a felony under the Controlled Substances Act by selling or delivering cocaine um, or by trafficking in, in cocaine. Second, that the felony was part of a continuing series. Third, that um, this series he undertook in concert with five other people. Fourth, that with respect to these positions, the defendant occupied a position as organizer, supervisor, or other position of management. And fifth, the defendant obtained substantial income or resources from a series of crimes. The conspiracy statute has three elements. This defendant and other people entered into agreement that the agreement was to commit trafficking in cocaine by sale, distribution, manufacture, transportation, or possession. And this was of 400 grams of cocaine. Um, and that weight issue is what makes it not a lesser included here. Um, and that's included in the indictment for the conspiracy. Um, and then third, that the defendant and other persons intended the agreement be carried out at the time that it was made. So going from the CCE statute to the conspiracy to traffic statute, the CCE statute has this element that the person has to be a supervisor and, that's not, and other elements that aren't found in the trafficking. And then if you go from the trafficking statute to the CCE statute, there's this weight requirement that there's the 400 grams of, of cocaine that um, have to be done. And so therefore, um, these offenses are not um, lesser included of each other. Um, and I would also take issue with a, a lot of defendants' arguments sort of occur in a vacuum of what North Carolina case law says because there's a, sort of a lack of case law about continuing criminal enterprise. Um, and so defendant 
takes federal case law and says, well, this means that in North Carolina, this is true that a uh, CCE offense, that a uh, conspiracy to traffic is a lesser included of a CCE offense, and that's the Rutledge case. Um, it's a federal case. And we have different statutes. We have the I would ask the court to look at 21 U.S.C. 841 and 846 and 848 versus our trafficking statutes and our state conspiracy statutes because the language is different. Um, the weight constitutes uh, trafficking in the, the conspiracy count, um, which might be different. Um, the CCE indictment also alleged the defendant bought and sold cocaine, whereas conspiracy requires this traffic amount. Um, and there ha- also has been this argument that was rejected in Rutledge but has never been heard in our state courts that undertaking something in concert with five other persons, as exists in the CCE um, crime, might be something different than did conspire that's found in the conspiracy agreement. And so um, I don't take that the federal law is necessarily the exact same as the North Carolina law because these statutes are different. And lastly, um, I'd like to turn to the um, first issue, if there's not any questions on that. that second I'm going to have an issue. I'm going to have a question for you, but I'm having some computer problems, so feel free to move on, but I'm going to come back with a question on that. Thank you, Judge. Um, the indictment for continuing uh, criminal enterprise was sufficient to track the statutory language. You've heard some of these arguments. Um, and the indictment language that was used was um, accurate here. And, and there's a couple things that I'd like to point out in looking at the federal case law. Again, defendant um, pulls Richardson, a U.S. Supreme Court case, which really was about the unanimity requirement. And defendant actually raised this in his argument earlier today, and that's not before the court. There is not a unanimity issue before this court today about whether the jury um, all found the same way on the continuing violations. But the element of continuing criminal enterprise has to mean something. The element is not um, dictate that on this day there was some sale, this day there was some sale, and there was it, it, the, the fact that the statute requires that there needs to be a continuing series um, with five or five other persons, that needs to mean something. And so really what we're trying to do here is substitute a new element into that continuing series where that needs to be pled with factual specificity. Um, if you look at the CCE indictment, um, it alleges that, um, that the defendant engaged in a criminal, continuing criminal enterprise by violating North Carolina General Statute 9095H3C by trafficking in cocaine and by violating, um, by selling and delivering cocaine. These violations, the violations were part of a continuing series of violations. And so the defendant is put on notice. And so I, this is not a constitutional question. This is a statutory interpretation question. And the federal statutory interpretation could be different than the state, the state statutory interpretation that might not exist at this point. Um, but federal courts have rejected defendant's argument, if you want to use that as sort of circumstantial evidence of what this court should do. Um, even in the wake of Richardson um, and Flaherty um, and, and Ulbricht, so there was an SDNY case that, that I cited, just to demonstrate what federal courts are doing with this currently. They are, uh, Ulbricht said the law is clear that an indictment need not specifically identify the predicate offenses for a CCE charge. Um, 
This it goes on to say this unanimity requirement, that, which the jury instructions already made clear, does not suggest that the universe of possible predicate offenses must be circumscribed. Um, United States v. Montague is a Second Circuit case um, that addresses this as well, um, in which the indictment was very similar to the indictment in the CCE case at bar. And so the defendant is getting open file discovery. The defendant's put on notice of the violations. This is not a question where the defendant doesn't have notice of what exactly he is being charged with. And that's really the essence of what an indictment is, to put a defendant on notice of the crime that he's facing. And if there was some sort of issue where defendants said, I'm not very clear on the details of these violations, the proper way to address such concerns is through a bill of particulars. And um, you don't have to take my word for that. If you look at the Montague case um, from, the four, from the Second Circuit, um, it, it goes on to state that um, although a bill of particulars cannot save an invalid indictment, the bill's purpose is to advise the defendant of the specific acts of which he is accused. And so here, um, these federal cases can be distinguished because the state laws are a little bit different. And um, to address this, there isn't a unanimity issue because that hasn't been raised. Um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that the court may have um, on any of these issues before sitting down. I guess as we were talking about the CCE and, and these other crimes that go into it, I, I started looking at our felony flee to elude, speeding to elude arrest, and the factors listed there. And, and our court, at least, has held that you can't convict for both felony flee to elude and, I mean, you can convict for them, but you can't get punished for both. You can't get punished also for uh, speeding in excess of 15 or reckless driving. So using that as, as a point of comparison, you have a statute that's pretty all-encompassing. So you, you're never going to have all these elements necessarily lining up in, in the face of the statute. But when it comes to getting to the particulars of what's charged, we did look at that, and we look at, yeah, you can commit it in other ways, but when it's done this way, you can't be punished for both. So talk to me just for a couple of minutes about that aspect, and if you can, differentiate that for me. Sure. And so I think that the, the thing that separates those two examples are that, um, and, and I haven't done motor vehicle law in a while, but the, the fleet elude, the um, lesser included necessarily, the elements are all captured by the sort of larger offense. Here we don't have that. Here the elements are different, and so they don't sort of merge together. And the court might say, well, look, there's trafficking in one and trafficking in the other, but I think the court has to look at this under a categorical approach where you look at the actual elements of the crime. And conceivably, you could commit continuing criminal enterprise um, in a way in which it wouldn't have a lesser included of conspiracy to traffic necessarily. Um, similarly, the, there are separate facts. So you'd have, you'd have that with, you know, speeding in excess of 15 miles an hour in this situation. Sure. And, and because with the, the statute, with the CCE statute, it says, what, any Article 5 felony. So that's just, it's a list. It's an exhaustive list, just like here. It's just, it's incorporated by reference by saying basically any felony under this article. Um, so why should we not be looking at it the same? Conspiracy to traffic is um, included in that. 
I think the distinction that can be made here is that, that, that there isn't case law that supports or says that conspiracy to traffic is a lesser included of our CCE statute. Appellant will stand up here and say federal courts have found that, but our, the language in ours is different, um, specifically that there's a, a weight difference. And I, and I guess under your hypothetical, the weight difference would be sort of akin to the um, the speed limit by, or going excess of 15, but there's other things that are required there. But the fact that these two, these two statutes have different elements, no matter which way you look at them, um, I think is what distinguishes them um, from that sort of hypothetical. Um, and while we bring up sort of other criminal statutes, I would point out to the court in evaluating issue one about the um, sufficiency of the indictment that there are other state statutes that include a sort of continuing course of events. Um, and I don't have any cases cited that, that those have to be specifically pled, but, um, but look at, at kidnapping, for instance, um, that there, there has to be an intent to commit a felony therein. And the question is whether you have to um, articulate that felony in indictment. And there's case law in the state about that. Um, same thing with stalking. Um, one of the elements of stalking is engaged in a course of conduct directed at a victim without legal purpose. Um, and, and I'd argue to you that that's a similar situation where an indictment would not need to include specific events of times where it occurred, but instead you have these continuing series of violations, much like you have in, in this um, continuing criminal enterprise statute where um, you can have a continuing series of, uh, of violations without articulating in the notice, in the indictment, specifically the, the, the um, facts that support it. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Otherwise, I would respectfully ask that this court affirm um, the trial court. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Good morning again. I'm just going to touch very briefly on some of the things that council has addressed. Uh, one, he says that there are no cases, um, you know, holding that a conspiracy is a lesser count of CCE, CCE. And of course, we admit that. That's why we're here today. There are no cases on this statute at all about anything in North Carolina. Um, so that is not a reason to rule in the state's favor. Um, Second is to the double jeopardy claim. He keeps saying that the 400 grams was a requirement of the conspiracy to traffic in cocaine, but not the CCE. But if you look at the two indictments, you'll see that both of them list the exact same statutory provision, which is 9095H3C. That is the provision for 400 grams. So the state is disclaiming, essentially, an element from its own indictment um, here today. Um, in order to prove a violation of that substatute, it had to prove the 400 grams. So there is no element in the conspiracy that is different than the CCE. Um, I'd also take or I'd object slightly although you can't object on evidentiary grounds here, to his contention that this is a, um, that the defendant was charged with trafficking. Because, of course, he was never separately charged with trafficking. It's a conspiracy. And that is the essence of this case, that there are two conspiracies. And that that's the reason why they merge. If he had been charged with trafficking under our case law, there would be no double jeopardy claim. 
because an individual can be theoretically convicted of a conspiracy statute uh, and of a completed offense. And that's actually supported by the state's memorandum of additional authority when it filed, I think, Garrett from the United States Supreme Court. So, so we would take uh, objection to that a little bit. Um, he did try to draw a distinction between acting in concert um, and conspiracy. And I don't think the law in North Carolina has diverged from federal case law. Under this statute, it's not just that the individuals acted in concert. Acting in concert in North Carolina does not require any express agreement uh, between the participants. But under this statute, you have to act in concert as a supervisor and as a manager of those lower-level people. That's what makes this a conspiracy statute. There has to be an agreement between the kingpin and the underworkers here to carry out um, these Article 5 violations together. That's what makes um, the acting in concert part of this really a conspiracy. And that's essentially the, the holding of Richard's uh, Rutledge. Um, so um, I think that it's true none of these federal cases are necessarily binding on questions of state law, but they're extremely compelling. And every single circuit um, has found these to be a double jeopardy violation. I did look for other states, but the CCE statute is so unique, it, it doesn't seem to be in other states, or at least there's no case law on it, it's the same as there is in North Carolina. So I, I can't tell you what other states uh, might do. Um, As for the Harbison issue, um, he did address, say that I, my uh, statement of the facts was misleading, and I think there was a paragraph break in between those two statements. There probably should have been an ellipses in there. Um, that was my recollection. If I didn't include that, um, I apologize for that, Your Honors. Uh, if there are no more questions, um, we just ask that you either reverse this case, um, reverse this case for a Harbison hearing as to issue four, reverse for resentencing um, under issue two or vacate the criminal continuing criminal enterprise under issue one um, or vacate the criminal continuing criminal enterprise under issue three. There's a lot of things going on. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you very much for your arguments. We learned a lot about continuing criminal enterprises today. Thank you very much. And we will adjourn. <laughs>